I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what's happening in Colombia with its most recent election and in the region throughout Latin America, we have with us Ryan Berg, CSIS Senior Fellow in the Americas Program and Head of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. So tell me what just happened in Colombia. You know, a lot of us have been focused on Ukraine, but what's happened in Colombia has been pretty seismic, hasn't it? Well, Colombia just had a presidential election in which the news media is reporting that the first leftist president in Colombia's history, Colombia's democratic history, has won and secured the presidency. What they mean by that is that Colombia had been uh, dominated for a long time by center and center-right political parties, and that there seemed to be a consensus in Colombia that center and center-right parties were the best. The left for a long time was associated with Colombia's civil war, with some of the guerrilla groups that it spawned and that had uh, really tragically contributed to so much violence and death and, uh, and displacement in that country. And so the left had a certain stigma for a long time. And that stigma seems to have receded as citizens in the region have been hit by COVID. They've been hit by a whole number of other transformations. And they're willing to try something new. You know, they're willing to try something different. And that's why I think people are looking at this as as such a seismic event in Colombia. And the new president, Gustavo Petro, who has won the election, um, he's pretty far to the left compared to the current president, Duque, right? That's right. Ivan Duque is a a very technocratic center-right president. He's a former World Bank employee. He's a a disciple of Alvaro Uribe, who really started the dominance of of center-right parties in Colombia in the 2000s. He was solidly on on the center-right. Petro is a different personality. He comes out of a guerrilla movement in Colombia. He was a part of the M19 movement. In the 1980s, he disarmed in the 1990s, went into politics. He was the mayor of Bogota, the capital of Colombia, for a while. And as a result of having been runner-up in the 2008 election against Duque, he was actually awarded a seat in the Colombian Senate, from which he used that platform to project himself as a candidate for the presidency this time around. So, Ryan, one of the concerns is is that the United States has long viewed Colombia as the linchpin in the region for the U.S. And President Biden has noted that they're a major non-NATO ally. So how does this election of Petro change the dynamic between the U.S. and Colombia, potentially? Yeah, that's right. When Duque visited in March, Biden said the phrase, the linchpin for our relationships with, with the hemisphere. The, the United States has put about $15 billion into Colombia over the years. This has been a bipartisan consensus. Republicans and Democrats have supported Plan Colombia, which is a wide-ranging plan to prevent Colombia from becoming a failed state, to help it secure itself against some of these guerrilla movements, and to build institutions, to build citizen security, and to build a dynamic entrepreneurial economy that exists today. With Petro, some of the, the, the ways in which we partner with Colombia may be challenged by what he said on the campaign trail, different ways in which he wants to fight transnational criminal organizations, which still exist in Colombia, different ideas he has for Colombia's development model, which of course involved moving it away from 
uh, a trading relationship with the United States away from oil as a very important part of, of Colombia's exports and a major revenue earner for the government. All of these things could affect the ways in which the U.S. looks at Colombia as a very strategic partner in the Western Hemisphere. And a big deal here is, of course, Venezuela, right? So the current president of Colombia, Duque, recognizes Juan Guaido as the elected leader of Venezuela. The new leader, Petro, is a friend of Maduro's and believes to recognize Maduro as the leader of Venezuela. Is that a huge problem for the United States and the region? I think it certainly presents a broader strategic challenge. It, it, Colombia, it should be noted, is not the only country that's elected a center-left president in the last couple of months. Latin America is in the moment at present in a, an election super cycle. So there are a number of important elections going on throughout the region, and it seems as though leftist candidates are winning. Voters are willing to try something new coming out of COVID. They're willing to vote for candidates that are, in some cases, uh, fringe candidates. They're, uh, in general, feeling very anti-establishment. And there are many ways in which this broader changing strategic environment augurs well for the Maduro regime. It means that there's less appetite in the region to put diplomatic pressure on his regime. And in Colombia's case, it even means the likelihood of a formal recognition from the president of Colombia to the Maduro regime, which didn't exist under, under the Duque administration. Duque was a very reliable proponent of a political transition in Venezuela through recognizing Juan Guaido, through recognizing the interim government. And it seems as though that is highly likely to change on August 7th when Petro is inaugurated and takes the reins in, in Colombia. So this, this overall means a, a very good strategic environment for Maduro. He's probably thinking about it in terms of his regime's survival and feeling pretty good about the fact that a number of countries in the hemisphere are looking to reestablish relations with him. They, they see the interim government as a failed project, and they're ready to come back to Maduro in terms of formal diplomatic recognition. We know what it means to be a leftist in America. What does it mean to be a leftist in Latin America? Well, I think it would be helpful if I spoke a bit about some of the things that Petro campaigned on, uh, because it, it would give you a better feel. I think that there's a certain sense in which he wants to move Colombia away from its current development model, which he feels is is too based on on free trade, and in particular, it's it's based on export of, of raw materials, commodities, and in, in particular, oil and gas. And so he's campaigned on a promise to shutter new oil and gas exploration in Colombia, which, as I mentioned, is one of the greatest revenue earners for the government. He has campaigned on a widening of the social safety net, bringing more people into the formal sector of the economy. He's campaigned on a pension reform, which will take a whole lot of resources to be able to increase uh, the, the pension that folks get in, in retirement. He's campaigned on a different way of addressing transnational criminal organizations, Again, not necessarily focused on the military solution to the problem, which characterized the Duque administration, but more focused on a peace-building process married to an economic development plan for a lot of rural areas, which are often the areas where we see a lot of the coca growing and the drug trafficking. He's against aerial eradication, for example, which was a big issue leading up to the campaign. He favors manual eradication. So those are some of the big differences, I think, between him and a, a 
traditional sort of Colombian centrist or center-right candidate. One of the biggest questions I would say, Andrew, going into his administration is just how much is he going to respect institutions in the country when things get tough? This is one of the, the biggest questions that we often fret about as Latin American analysts is, is he going to play by the rules or is he going to try to rule by executive decree? And even on the campaign trail, he mentioned at one point, and this got us all a little bit frightened, an emergency decree on the basis of there being so much corruption in Colombia that he would have to rule by executive order, essentially suspending Congress for a certain period of time. So, so this goes into the trend of other Latin American states having dictators. And this is what's concerning about this particular politician who has a leftist past. He has a militia background. Some would say he's, some have said he's, he's fought with terrorists. Is this what's really concerning you that Colombia could have a new dictator? It's a long-term concern. I think it's not likely that Petro is going to overnight turn Colombia into a democracy receding or in decline or even an autocracy or authoritarian regime. As we know, the, the way that authoritarian regimes spring up these days is often not with the snap of a finger. It's, it's a slow transformation. I mean, right next door, Venezuela is a great example. This is a 20-year and counting project that Chavismo has been using to reform and transform the state into ever more authoritarian institutions. It's not going to happen overnight in Colombia, and there are certainly plenty of ways in which institutional decline, democratic decline can be stopped in Colombia. But one of the major questions in my mind is whether he's going to be an institutionalist. When the Congress votes against some of his proposals or he has trouble moving the needle in a Senate where he doesn't have a majority, what is he going to do? These are, these are questions that remain unanswered, and the answers to them will tell us a lot about where Colombia might be going in terms of its institutional and democratic health. And what leverage, if any, does the United States have over Colombia and really in the region right now, which is perhaps even more important for us? Going back to that phrase from the president of the United States, Colombia is the linchpin in the region. It's, it's the country we often look to when we formulate our, our strategic guidance and policy for Latin America. And so I think we have a whole heck of a lot of, of leverage there in being able to moderate perhaps some of, some of Petro's plans, being able to, to have a say, to be able to communicate to him what's at stake in terms of the U.S.-Colombia relationship, uh, which is a very deep one. It's existed for many years and it's institutionalized now. It's not like it's a personal relationship between presidents. There are a, a whole number of institutions that work through back channels, through established channels with both parties in the United States to effectively carry out that bilateral relationship. So this isn't something that can change rapidly overnight. It's something that we're going to have to look at in the medium to long term to look at uh, the way that it might evolve. But I don't anticipate it's going to change absolutely overnight because that's generally not how these things work. You've mentioned that Petro has been a supporter of Chavismo and the political ideology that goes with that. Explain what that really is and why that could increase his sphere of influence across the region. It's hard to say what Chavismo is today as compared to what it was in its day when it actually had a set of ideas behind it. Now it seems like the idea just is to remain in power in Venezuela through whatever means possible. But back in the day, of course, it had a strong focus on redistributionary economic policy, 
using the, the, the massive resources that Venezuela had at its disposal through PDVSA, its state-owned oil company, to provide a broader safety net to Venezuelans. And it was something that was never focused solely on Venezuela. Chavismo as a political ideology started in Venezuela, but it always had a regional focus. It always had an ambition to catch on outside of the borders of Venezuela, to be an, an inspirational revolutionary movement. As you mentioned, Petro has maintained a, a good relationship with Chavismo for a long time. He was an adherent. He, he had a friendly relationship with Hugo Chavez. And, and so it, there is no doubt there that, that there's some ideological affinity. And we're going to have to see how much that ideological affinity translates over into Colombia's policy toward Venezuela. It looks at this point in time like it's already going to translate into a diplomatic opening. But beyond that, we'll have to see how much ideological affinity carries that relationship forward. Now, overall, there's been a trend of democratic backsliding in the region, which follows the global trend of democratic backsliding. Does this election of Petro hasten such backsliding? Well, it's a great question. Again, I think it comes back to whether Petro is going to be an institutional player or not. I, for one, think that Colombia's institutions are very, very strong. That's not to say that they're perfect. It's not to say that they aren't without their issues or with, without corruption. But Colombia is a strong democracy. It's going to take a lot for Colombia to backslide in the same way that, that Venezuela did. There were some hot takes after Petro's election that this would hasten Hugo Chavez 2.0 in Colombia. I think it's, it's going to take a lot to make Colombia... Venezuela. I think the institutions are much stronger than where Venezuela was at in 1998 when Hugo Chavez came to power. That said, I don't think Colombia is somehow out of the woods or it's, it's, it's safe. Colombia certainly could become a democracy that goes into decline, much like other strong democracies in the region have. Brazil, for example, is another democracy, undisputed, uh, with extremely strong institutions that are nevertheless under a lot of strain in the current environment surrounding an election and a potential post-election scenario. So even the strongest democracies in the hemisphere are under a lot of stress with current leaders, not just to show that they can deliver, but to, to also show that they can provide those institutional guardrails that keep countries following democratic processes, that keep countries with independent judiciaries, with uh, independent electoral systems, and so on and so forth. Well, what can the United States and its allies do to strengthen democracy in Latin America? The first thing that the United States has to do is pay more attention. In many of my uh, experiences with diplomats in the region, it's always the question of how much the United States actually focuses on Latin America versus how much it takes Latin America for granted as a region that is largely democratic, that is largely at peace, and that doesn't present the same sort of strategic challenges that the European theater presents or even the Indo-Pacific theater with a rising China presents. And so that makes it difficult to spend the, the allotted amount of time and resources that Latin America deserves, uh, in, in my opinion. So the first thing is, is just time and energy spent in the region. The second thing is we have a lot of tools at our disposal. The Inter-American Democratic Charter, which was signed in 2001, is a beautiful document. In many ways, it's unique worldwide in terms of what it did to, to pledge the region's commitment to democracy as the unique form of government that all Americans, in the very plural sense of that term, 
that all Americans are entitled to as a right. And every country in the region signed that document in 2001, except for Cuba. So we've made a regional pledge to help one another further democracy. And we have tools within that document and, and that are used in the institutions of the Organization of American States, the Inter-American System, that can help police some of these violations. We have an Inter-American Court of Human Rights. We have an OAS Committee on Hemispheric Security. We have a whole number of democracy and human rights commissions within the hemisphere that focus on violations and try to bring justice to, to some of the victims in ways that can help us keep those guardrails there. And in many ways, I think the United States, by not paying as much attention as it should over the last 20 years, had the architecture in place to be great democracy promoters, but actually didn't use that architecture to the best of its ability. We as a country, I think, were a bit too focused on elections. We were happy if elections ran on time. We were happy if it looked like there was some democratic competition within elections. And we didn't pay enough attention to the fact that essentially elected autocrats were getting elected in, in our own shared neighborhood. And we weren't looking enough at what the, the winners of elections said about the macro dynamics in some of those countries. And so that would be the next layer of analysis where we have to focus to be better democracy promoters and to help Latin America consolidate uh, its democratic path. You know, finally, Ryan, what impact, if any, could citizens here in the United States feel from this Colombian election? We've already seen an uptick in Colombian migration to the United States. We will likely see an uptick, an even further uptick in Venezuelan migration to the United States. I know that many Venezuelans in Colombia see a repeat of what they saw in Venezuela. And of course, that could be a trigger for, for outflows of migration. If the security situation worsens in Colombia, we could, of course, uh, see more of our citizens affected by substance use disorders, for example, because Colombia is a large coca producer. It is a large transit country for illicit narcotics. The security angle is very, very important for the U.S. government. And we could see further regional instability as well if the government in Colombia is not keen on keeping the diplomatic pressure up on the Maduro regime, allowing it to expand its influence throughout the region. Venezuela is having region-wide effects. It's, it's, that's indisputable, in my opinion. It is a, a source of regional instability with its participation, active state participation, in illicit economies. And if that spreads into Colombia in a significant way, Americans will, will feel that as well, not just with migratory flows, but with drug flows and with regional instability that could affect economic performance as well. And as a country that has a free trade agreement with the United States, that's always something we have to look at as well. Ryan, a lot to think about here for the United States and for Americans. Thank you so much for helping us understand better what's going on in Colombia and in greater Latin America. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 